We're live. We are here on SAFM. Technical glitches here. Beg your pardon. Did kill my momentum. I won't lie. I'm not at all pleased about that. But these things from time to time do happen on radio. We deal with them. Good evening, Sanisha Naidu. Thank you so much for joining us. Senior Research Fellow, Institute for Global Dialogue. Good Sanish- evening, Sanjay. And it's lovely to be on the show again. Hope you're well. Not, I am indeed well, but not necessarily a day for us to be well, given the events of what's happening in the Middle East and the Eastern Cape. I recalled earlier on there's been a terrible bus accident. The figure is yeah. closer to 30 now along the kite cuttings. Notorious for such things, but of course, what is on everybody's lips and has been on everybody's lips the whole day, if not the weekend, one word and one word alone, Amerikana. Yeah, absolutely. And I think given where we are in the country right now, Marikana kind of epitomizes the actual landscape, the political, economic, social landscape of our country. I mean, I was watching the memorial this, this, the today, parts of it, and it's really sad that people are still waiting for answers. They're still waiting for accountability. They're still waiting for the implementation of that commission of inquiry, who's going to be held accountable for what happened. Um, and, and more importantly, the, the whole the whole place of Marikana, you know, if you look at it today and you see the, the landscape, it's it's really sad that people are still in a state of socioeconomic crisis, squalor, poverty, um, inequality, still trying to survive after the events of, of Marikana and, and where we are right now. I put it to you, Marikana is the first of what will become another, if you will, Marikana. It might not happen in Marikana. It might happen elsewhere. It will happen happen elsewhere. All of the hallmarks for Marikana in South Africa, I dare say, are more pronounced now. The relationship between business and labor is less stable now than it was then. The relationship between labor and the politics and the establishment of the day is not nearly as stable. And if all else fails, the reality is more people are hungry now. The scarcity of jobs and the pressure that puts into households and on individuals' shoulders is far greater now, nine years on, than was the case in Marikana, and which is less or more. There are far less resources to go around to satisfy otherwise these legitimate claims in the labor space. So it's a question of when. The question then becomes... How do you avoid what we know we are in collision course for? You know, Sanjay, what you're raising is a very poignant point. It's a very important structural issue in terms of the economic, socio-economic landscape, the structural conditions around household income, poverty, inequality, employment. Has the economy delivered? And I think in, in terms of your contextualization, that we are going, we are on a collision course for more, um, more Americanos to come. I think we've already felt that. I think in the run-up to Americano, we could see it, or rather, we could. It was palpable in the sense that it was there. We could see that this collision course was coming. Americano happened. Nine years later, we saw what happened in in terms of. The, the situation in the beginning of July in KZN and parts of Gauteng. I think that people are essentially in such a, a desperate situation. Their, their lives and livelihoods have not improved. And I think your, your characterization of the relationship between labor, business, and government is very important to understand that when you think about our economics and our economic policy making and our macroeconomic policy, 
the fiscal approach, the austerity approach hasn't worked. People have become, have, have less on their plate now, uh, exacerbated by the pandemic. We see food insecurity critical to the situation. Lives are, are in a state of, of weakness. People's livelihoods are just completely um, in a state of desperation. And I think at the end of the day, even you, we can't even say that this is only uh, reflective of one particular section of the population. It's hitting home in every section of the population and across different social, uh, social classes. And, and people are becoming more and more caught up in how are they going to survive. I mean, if you just take, for example, the impact, the throughput cost of what that what the price of petrol costs today and look at the, the, the impact of that on our livelihoods. It's going to be, you know, it's, it, it's still going to be felt. But at the same time, it's, people are finding it difficult to even be able to go to a supermarket and decide, you know, what is my basic need? Because the basic need has escalated in terms of price. Now, all of that is not not known by the persons who should know and act consequent upon that knowledge to mitigate the socioeconomic strain and strife that would otherwise be occasioned on those persons whose facts they know to be quite destitute, dire and desperate. Of course, it isn't happening, and there's an opportunity as ordinary South Africans to correct that come 27 October if the local government elections are to go on, much along the same path of what Zambia has now done. People Mm -hmm. have decided they've had enough. That alone, in my view, is not the solution because you could simply have one chess player replacing another chess player to make the same moves. So to the extent that the people have the power, they do insofar as it relates to ensuring somebody else is on that chair. But it could be another character on that chair that, that simply moves into the position of the predecessor. How do we then inculcate a culture of accountability? If we were to have, as we do have, on the 21st of March of every year, a conversation about the apartheid police, what happened in Shobville that day, and how that became, if you like, a definitive in terms of how the South African struggle was to be waged as a result. We reflect on that day and we bastardize to the extent that we can those mm-hmm. known forces, including the security forces and the government of the day. Could we or should we not speak of the same about the ANC now? Yeah, well, I think you really, you know, the point you make is very important. I think... You, we, you're asking a question about um, the local government elections, when it, I mean, if it will be held this year or if the apex court decides that it can be moved to next year. I think all of that is, is contingent on what the decision is. But I think the election, what you raised about the election, is very critical to understanding how people feel about the democracy and about the people that represent them in the democracy. And we do know that in South Africa right now, the level of apathy, the level of distrust, and the level of of um, lack of confidence in the state architecture around precisely around the issues you're raising in terms of accountability. We can have these conversations about the 21st of March and, and how that needs to be remembered, but then we need to hold a similar kind of level of accountability and level of discourse and dialogue about the current kinds of issues that need to be also remembered, but also, uh, you know, in terms of the level of accountability. I think the one avenue is the election, and and what we saw in Zambia was quite interesting, because if you look at the the president-elect, 
um, and where the support base came from. It came from young people. It came from the youth. And the youth were quite, I think, in, in, if you look at the overall uh, voter turnout, it was just about two-thirds of the population. In some regions of the uh, country in Zambia, it went up to about 90% turnout. So the, uh, the, the, the current party that, is, that, that basically won the election, the UN, uh, the UPND, mm-hmm. essentially won about 59% of the vote. Now, this means that in Zambia, there were serious socioeconomic problems. The unemployment rate was massive. The question of accountability, human rights abuses, questions of people being held accountable, corruption, you know, the, whole, the whole kind of depressed commodity issues and how that impacted on the state and the accountability of the state. They voted, they, they voted the, the, the PF out of power. But at the same time, I think this is where we need to realize that young people are critical to this to this democracy and they're critical to their accountability. I, my sense is that the young people, the young Zambians right now, the younger generation, even in South Africa and across the continent, are not going to be as loyal and and be as sympathetic as we or older generations have been to political parties and loyalty and alignment to political parties. I think they're going to vote you in. If you don't deliver, you're going to get voted out. But I think, for me, the bigger accountability is when those councillors come knocking at your door. I mean, the other day somebody was phoning me and saying, do you know that you have to register? And I said, well, what have you done for me that I have to register and vote for you? Give me a good plan. Tell me what you're going to do. And I think those door-to-door campaigns and all of that stuff that we see these councillors pop out of the woodwork and suddenly they're there to start shining the light and talking to you and going going around and, ho- and holding these discussions, you've got to say to them, come on, you need to basically account. I mean, in parts of the country, look at the infrastructure, look at the sanitation and water issues, look at the fact that there's backlogs in, in, in municipalities. The vetting of these, of these, of these councillors is important, but I think at the end of the day, you have to take some confidence out of the Zambian condition, uh, situation where young people have said, we want that change. Yeah, we're taking calls. Johannesburg, 714-2006. My guest this evening is Ms. Sanusha Naidu. She is a senior research fellow at the Institute for Global Dialogue. She's with us until 20 to the hour. We're talking about all things this past weekend and all things today, if you will. We're looking at what's happening in the country. We're looking at what's happening on the continent. And we'll certainly have a word or two to talk about how the Taliban is tightening its grip on Afghanistan, particularly in the capital of Kabul, after it effectively has deposed their president following the withdrawal of the United States forces from Afghanistan, an election promise of Obama now being affected by Biden. But of course, the collateral of just that singular political move has to be talked to and cannot escape the scrutiny of both SAFM, but more importantly, its patronage in South African homes. So after this very short break, let's get dialing, please. Johannesburg, 714-2006. I would welcome also voice notes. Keep it short, under a minute, and we'll be sure to play it. For unskippable, no-click baiting, and cookie-free... With lots of real followers and likes, place your sales campaign on SAFM. Radio is still the best place to advertise your business at affordable rates.
SAFM, with its national footprint and top personalities, offer advertisers distinctive opportunities to reach their target audience. Email sales at safm.co.za. SAFM, the influencer you can trust. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. On SAFM. We remember Marikana. We pay tribute to those fallen persons in the bus accidents in the Eastern Cape on the N2 along, or rather along the N2 just outside Butterworth. Right now it is 2030. We are taking calls. Remember you have 90 seconds if you aren't going to be on the phone with us. Madwaka, first up this evening. Good evening. Thank you so much for calling us. Your 90 seconds starts now. Hmm. Um, it's clear that um, in, 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 in terms of those who are leading us, our opinions really don't matter. So, in effect, it means we're speaking to ourselves. But none, nonetheless, let me say what I wanted to say. <clears throat> of all the problems that we do have in this country, corruption is not in any way the least of them. But I want to argue that inequalities, in particularly those that are racially expressed, are more pressing the plight of the black men and women, the black child, and the reality is that those who are in power, really, they do not care about this because they are not impacted about this. They come to us only when they need our votes to affirm them. That's the situation. So we're speaking to ourselves. Nobody is bothered to listen, at least among those who are leading the country. A sad, a, a sad reality. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that comment. Thank you so much, Matoka. Sanusha, do you want to respond to that? Because I think the caller has, in many respects, accounted for why exactly the nation finds itself where it is. When we talk about accountability before the rule of law, when we talk about governance and ethics and a responsive state, one, two, and a state that continues to strive for excellence, the so-called building a capable state, you don't get an impression of any of these things exist or are at least ideals in one's ordinary transactions with the state. Go to a police station, go to a public health care facility, look at the regularity, if at all your rubbish is collected, look at the edifice of public infrastructure in general, mm. look mm. at whether or not you have street lamps, look at whether or not your potholes are repaired within good time. Do you even know who to call for certain services that you pay for monthly but do not get to enjoy? And Matuacha has essentially said, we are talking to ourselves because those who are there are for the most part indifferent, if at least they don't care. I, I think your, your caller hit the nail on the head. I think that is a reflection of broader society's frustration with dealing with a, with a bureaucracy, a government, or whether you talk about it at a national, provincial, or local level with your municipality, that's just non-responsive, um, as you said, indifferent to the needs, the quality of life, for people who you say you are representing. The fact that you talked about going into a police station or into a hospital or into a clinic, the fact that uh, there's, this, there's this inequality that's intergenerational, there's an inequality in terms of the services that people can afford and cannot afford, and yet you pay your taxes, you pay your rates, you pay whatever, and you expect to be afforded the respect and the dignity when you have to be 
engaging with your public officials, etc. I think he, I think your caller also is, you know, talking to a set of issues in terms of the fact that people's concerns are not being taken being taken seriously, falling on deaf ears. We hear what the president is saying. We hear what certain public officials are saying, but it's not focusing down. People are not changing their attitudes towards others. They're not changing the way they need to respect others. And I think this idea that we have a constitution that protects these rights and talks about a life of dignity, sometimes we need to remind our public officials that they don't, we don't serve them, they serve us, because it's through our tax-paying money, and all of us pay tax, irrespective of what the debates and narratives may say. We all pay tax in, in different ways. Uh, we pay for those salaries, and they are accountable to us. Yeah, sure. Let's go for a field now, because I see that we don't have yet a caller. There are two voice notes. Perhaps let's listen to the voice notes first. This is more important. Hi, Swangezo. You know, man, I am really disappointed with the ANC and the president, especially President Ramaphosa. He did show us that he doesn't care for anyone. He does only care about himself, about this issue of Marikana, for the fact that he, he, he doesn't even feel nothing to pay to these people who are crying. But really, I swear, I will never, ever vote for the ANC in my life. Never will ever, I will ever do that. I'm done with the ANC. The compliments must go to the youth of Zambia to go in numbers to take part in election. These people, they show in that they need a change. They need to change their countries. They are fed up with corruption. This is a good example for us as a South African. The graduate, the youth who are sitting at home looking for the old crock in the parliament, the crannies who are looking for their families, who don't care about you. It's your time to stand up and vote out the ANC. Thank you. Well, I am interested in somebody's going to be saying anything quite opposite to the general tone of what we are getting as contributions. But I think just to sum up the conversation about local matters, Yasanusha, is there certainly is an opportunity here for the ANC, if it has never done so before, to reflect. It's happening mm -hmm. here in Sadek. Edgar Lunga, president incumbent, taken out. Yes, of course, he has a political rival, but the decisive voice with the voices of young people. South Africa is a country more of young people, people under the age of 35, more than people over the age of 35. President Ramaphosa is in line, if he can get over the ANC hurdle, to get a second term. But even then, that looks rather precarious. At any rate, the ANC, since 2009, at every national election, as well as provincial, it is dropping. Anything less than 50 will force them to go into a coalition government. Mm -hmm. The signs clearly are there. Dr. Zamani, the, Dr. Zamani Sal, the premier of the Northern Cape, has said this is a rich lesson for us in reference to the election outcomes of Zambia. What would constitute a rich lesson for the ANC now that it hasn't been given an opportunity to learn from in previous events outside this election? I think the rich lesson is it cannot afford to be arrogant, it cannot afford to be smug, it cannot afford to assume that it can just continue to take the electoral process in the kind of way that it has done in, in, in the past. I think your two voice notes and, of course, the callers are suggesting that they are tired of 
of having a party in power that they feel does not represent their voice or does not necessarily represent them and what they feel are their interests and their real needs. I think for me, what's going to be really critical for the ANC's wake-up call, if they haven't had it already, um, given what has happened in, in July and given what has happened in the party, if they keep putting these internal dynamics and party factionism above other issues, then they have to basically be prepared to be voted out at a municipality level in different ways, out of wards, etc., and out of uh, the, the municipalities. But I think they've got to also be prepared for what young people are going to demand of them and what what general uh, electorate is going to ask of them, and that is to be accountable. And if they're not prepared to do that, and we continue to have geriatric people that run the country, then it's very difficult for them to have that vision to take the country forward, and that's going to be a big lesson. I'm watching CNN now as we move further afield into the Northern Hemisphere, into the Middle East. The legacy of George Bush is still with the international political space. The instability now in Afghanistan invariably will affect the region. And Joe Biden has to try and make sense and clean it up. Of course, bearing in mind that it's not all Joe Biden's decisions what's going on there. What is your take on that? My take on that is, you know, 20 years later, my sense is that it's, a, it's an admission of defeat by the U.S. that whatever they try to do in, in, in Afghanistan in trying to bring stability and bring a kind of, I'm going to put it in inverted commas, a modernization of society in Afghanistan, they hadn't learned. Because at the end of the day, it is not your right to go in there to determine uh, the way in which that country needs to evolve. I mean, for me, what really is sad about the situation and the images that are unfolding uh, on CNN and other news agencies is the fact that there's so much of desperation, people hanging onto military planes trying to escape out of Kabul. Uh, the fact of the matter is the president, just the president, or is he now a, a former president of, uh, of Afghanistan, just fleeing the country and saying he did it to prevent bloodshed. Now we hear that there's a whole lot of uh, resources and monetary and I think money that was found that he had fled with. I mean, it kind of makes one wonder, what did the U.S. get out of this in the last 20 years, if not all those soldiers that have basically come back with post-traumatic stress, stress disorder, people that have lo- uh, families that have lost soldiers in Afghanistan, family members who have to deal with with, 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 with uh, Af- they're calling them Afghan war vets, who essentially have been maimed, lost limbs. What was it all for? Because the way in which this, this, this removal or this uh, exodus out of Afghanistan has taken place seems to be very, very haphazard. There's no structure in place to allow this to, to have a free, smooth transition. I mean, the way in which... Uh, the Taliban had moved with lightning speed across the provinces and took key strongholds from areas across and then got into Kabul, the capital city last night, and eventually into the presidential palace, tells me that there was no planning. The, the coordination of this of, of this removal and and uh, exodus of the military, the U.S. military, just didn't have any coordination. But isn't that actually the plan? Well, I'm not sure if that's the plan because... To my mind, I've, I've, I, I see this as, as, as what happened in 1975 when the U.S. kind of did a similar exodus out of Saigon um, in, in Vietnam, which was called Southern, I think it was, mm. uh, Southern Vietnam at the time. And, you know, there was no, I mean, for me, the question is not the plan that you leave a degenerated society. You create more instability. 
The plan was that for the longest time of 20 years, you were stabilizing this country because you said that it needed to be stabilized. You put in your like-minded leaders. They came in, and of course, now we've seen this whole project fail. I think for me, the challenge is really whether or not you go into countries where you understand the structural conditions. I think the lesson that any country, any country needs to learn is the, the, the Waterloo of Vietnam and the Waterloo of Afghanistan by the Soviets. Because when the Soviets went in there, they, I think, lost about 14,000 soldiers in that Afghan war. Uh, in, in 1979. For the U.S., in, in, you know, it's, it's a similar, not similar numbers, but it's about around about two, 3,000 soldiers or if not more that, that have basically lost their lives and so forth. And I think for me, the challenge is it's not, the, you know, we talk about our leaders not being in touch with, with, their, with the people on the ground. I think when you have these big military strategists who are not in touch with what's going on, but rather want to go in there and don't understand the terrain, it's ordinary soldiers on the ground that bear the brunt of this. The Taliban has come through. The Taliban is, we're not sure what kind of government they're going to put into place. We're not sure if they're going to reverse all of the gains for women and children. There's, there, there, that is why you have this, this fear, this desperation, this uncertainty today in Afghanistan where people are trying to get their money out of banks and banks are not allowing money to be withdrawn. ATMs have no, no bank notes. People are just completely in a state of desperation because they don't know whether the Taliban has has reformed itself or it's going to go back to basics of what it was previously from about 2000, I think around about 90, uh, the late 1990s. The world is short of inspiration. I look forward to the day where it finds it, even for a fleeting moment, because everything we've talked about today is just more reason why we are depressed. Thank you so much for your thoughts there, Ms. Sanusha Naidu. It's a pleasure, and I also wait for that moment of inspiration, but I guess we have to think about it in the context of we're not basically you know, apart. We all are one. We all have one humanity.